world's too big, Mom. Then make it small. Focus on my voice. Pretend it's an island out in the ocean. Can you see it? I see it. My son was in the bus. He saw what Clark did. You have to keep this side of yourself a secret. What was I supposed to do? Just let him die? Maybe. I have so many questions. Where do I come from? have to decide what kind of man you want to grow up to be, Clark. Whoever that man is, he's going to change the world. Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to the Man of Steel. Welcome to Superman Forever Radio. I am J. David Weeder, your mild-mannered host, and this is the 50th episode, the golden anniversary. So I wanted to celebrate with something special, a story of a certain caliber. Now since the show came back, I've covered Superman with Batman in Generations, Superman action figures, a pair of fellow heroes, and how they interact with Superman, and his archenemy. Tonight, the Man of Steel is back, front and center where he should be. There's some material that you just set out the fine china for. Some stories that are automatically listed on the all-time great lists. Tonight, we read one that always appears near the top. This is a series that I oddly discovered in 2000 when I found all four issues on the comic rack at the grocery store that I worked at. Two years after the miniseries came out, I found them behind some old magazines, and I opened it up. I was immediately enamored. I thought it was one of the best 
most beautiful stories I'd ever read, and quickly shared with anyone who would listen the character moments that moved me, the art splashes that seared themselves into my memory, and ultimately reignited my unrequited love for Superman. Admittedly, I had been one foot in, one foot out of comics for a couple of years, including Superman, but this story brought it all back and really realigned and redefined what I love about Superman. So tonight, it is my distinct pleasure, my absolute privilege, to present to you Superman for All Seasons. In 1998, Superman had just gotten back to being Superman, after a period in which his powers were electricity-based. In fact, the change back to the traditional Superman had just occurred three months prior to Superman for All Seasons being released. The Man of Steel had four main titles, Superman, Adventures of Superman, Superman the Man of Steel, and Action Comics. Now, DC was looking for ways to reinvigorate Superman for his 60th anniversary and Grant Morrison, Mark Wade, and Mark Millar were working on their Superman 2000 or Superman Now pitch to be submitted in October of that year. Comics were on a comeback. It was a renaissance following the implosion of the 90s spectator market, and their focus was returned to substance and style. DC had already mined Hollywood writers to generate fresh perspectives on the material, including Back to the Future producer Bob Gale on the Batman mega-event No Man's Land. So... Enter from Hollywood, Jeff Loeb. Jeff Loeb was no stranger to comics or Superman, but was better known for his screenwriting. He wrote films like Teen Wolf, Commando, and the Whoopi Goldberg movie Burglar. But as a young man, Loeb had a run-in with Superman writer Elliot S. Magan, in which Loeb proposed a story in which the Guardians of the Universe questioned whether there should be a Superman. While Magan dismissed the idea at the time, it must have stuck subliminally because he later went on to write Must There Be a Superman, a story in which the Guardians really did pose that very question. Though both men agree that Magan did this unintentionally, Loeb still had a hand in Superman from an early age. Loeb came to comics through a pitch for a movie about The Flash. Now, the movie never got made, but this put Loeb on DC publisher Jeanette Kahn's radar, and she asked if he wanted to write some DC comics. Loeb made his writing debut on a relaunched Challengers of the Unknown series in 1991, which lasted eight issues, a comic that he did with an artist named Tim Sale. Tim Sale was an artist who hailed from Seattle but returned to New York, where he was born, to attend the School of Visual Arts. Though he left the school before graduating, Sale still found work at Starblaze Comics, publishers of ElfQuest reprints, and Colleen Durant's acclaimed series A Distant Soil. Sale worked on comic adaptations of Robert Asprin's A Fine Myth Books and Thieves' World. After partnering with Loeb on Challengers of the Unknown, the two would go on to make a great working relationship, and both would find themselves defined by the material they would make together. But before they would tackle the Man of Steel, 
they made their name with another mainstay DC character. Loeb and Sale would gain critical acclaim for three stories in the Halloween specials for the Batman series Legends of the Dark Knight. Together, they produced the stories Choices, Madness, and Ghosts. And then, they spun their unique take on the Halloween holiday into a bigger story, the 13-issue series Batman The Long Halloween. In the story, they explored Batman's early years, picking up from Batman Year One to show a Gotham that transitions from gangsters and common criminals to a city of jokers, mad hatters, and a fallen district attorney named Harvey Dent. The series was defined in its year-long run by the holidays that occupied each month, beginning and ending with Halloween. The series was a huge success financially and critically, striking a noir tone in subject matter and sales distinctive art style. The book set a new standard in storytelling and spawned a sequel, Batman Dark Victory. It also set a concept that Loeb and Sale would make their trademark, retroactive tales of the most high-level heroes, a concept that would bring us Spider-Man Blue, Daredevil Yellow, and Hulk Gray. But before all of that, following the completion of Long Halloween, Tim Sale stated that he wanted to do Superman next. Loeb was elated because when he came to DC to do Challengers of the Unknown, his first choice of subject matter was Superman. He wanted to write The Man of Steel, and so work began on Superman for All Seasons. Like Batman The Long Halloween, Superman for All Seasons takes place early in Superman's career and works within the rough time period before and during John Byrne's Man of Steel, which was the canon origin story at the time. Instead of holidays, it uses seasons of the year to frame its story, as the title suggests. The story was presented in four prestige format issues, each one having a price point of $4.95. Loeb and Sale were joined by Bjorn Hansen, a Danish painter and colorist who had primarily worked in animation on movies such as The Search for Camelot. Hansen would color the book, since Tim Sale was colorblind and only worked in black and white. They were joined on letters by Richard Starkings, a prolific letterer who had a well-respected body of work and went on to found the Comicraft studio. The four would remain the creative team for every issue. The series was released monthly in 1998, and each book corresponded to a season, with the first being spring, followed by summer, fall, and finally winter. The first issue was released on July 1st, with the second on August 5th, and the third on September 16th, with the final issue on October 28th. Front covers for the issues featured an image surrounded by a simple, semi-transparent border, and a simple font for the trade dress that eschewed the traditional descending arched Superman logo. The back covers featured simple text with a single image showing Clark's silhouette near a tree and each changing to reflect the weather environment of the particular season. Together, the consistent, high-quality covers presented a feeling different from other comics on stands. One look at any issue and it was clear that this was a different story, something special, something that stands out from the pack. But it is the content within that proves that Superman for All Seasons is a story for all time. Superman for All Seasons Book 1 Spring greets us with a cover of Superman majestically flying towards the reader with a Kent farm in the background and a gorgeous Kansas sunset. The back cover has Clark's silhouette leaning against a tree 
budding with life and flowers sprouting all around him. It reads, A Small Farm in Kansas. A family like any other. A boy about to fulfill a destiny unlike any other. Witness the humble beginnings of a young man who would grow to become the world's greatest hero. Which is a concept that may sound familiar now, but certainly wasn't then. And the book opens with a simple three-panel page, each one growing ever closer to Superman's iconic shield without showing his face, as Jonathan Kent narrates. He tells us folks tend to call him the Man of Steel nowadays. I guess that he's the most famous person in the world. Not that he was ever interested in being famous in the first place. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Change the course of mighty rivers. Faster than a speeding bullet. We knew he was special, but people will talk. Believe it or not, there was a time before all that when he was just a man's son. And we begin with a scene that takes over pages 2 through 6 that I call The Stump, in which a young Clark, standing at the Kent farm, which is immaculately rendered, calls out for his paw. The details, as I mentioned, are exquisite. Um, it's every bit of Americana that you can imagine. The porch swing with the Afghan thrown over it, the dog bowls with their names Shelby and Rusty, Shelby the dog, based on Tim Sale's own dog Shelby. There's even a pie sitting in the window cooling. It's everything you think about when you think of classic America. Classic Norman Rockwell. And Rockwell was a huge influence on this book. The coloring of the clouds in these scenes. It's part Fleischer. It's part Technicolor. It's like Gone with the Wind. I, and I don't say that as a criticism. I say that's exactly the feeling you want to evoke. Classic Americana. It's all here. Now... When we open, Clark and, our, and, and Jonathan have already had the talk from Man of Steel number one. Clark knows about the rocket. He knows he's different, probably from another world. He still has that running around in his head. We have Jonathan plowing the field when his, his plow hits a huge stump. Now, when Clark approaches to tell Pa that it's time for supper, Pa is trying to get the stump out of the ground with a large crowbar. Now, while Jonathan has been struggling, Clark simply lifts it up without even breaking a sweat, in which Jonathan stands silently with a disapproving look and then walks off telling him, your mother wants us for supper, best not to keep him waiting. The thing that really resonates me about this, about this scene is Jonathan Kent. Now, this is, in a lot of ways, his issue. He's very integral, because we are seeing Clark through his eyes. Jonathan is not perfect. Uh, there isn't a playbook on raising a, a baby, much less a baby with unlimited superpowers. And there's a lot of people who are complaining about the Man of Steel trailer, in which Jonathan says, you know, maybe. You all know the line. I want to say that this has been part of Jonathan for a long time. He's trying. He's a simple man, and I don't mean that he's dumb. But he's not educated. He doesn't have all the answers. And some of that is what makes Clark excellent. That's what makes Jonathan a good guide. He can give these simple answers and maybe a slight guide. But for what Clark's going to do, what Clark's going through, there's no simple answers. Jonathan can only say, do the right thing. 
Are, is his advice always going to be pitch perfect? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> but Jonathan is dealing the best he can. I'm going to talk about that more in a minute. Um, we have a dinner scene in which Ma is serving a ham while Lana is over. Clark is feeding the dog quietly behind the chair while uh, Lana's aunt is uh, drinking tea and looking disapproving. It's Norman Rockwell. It's very Norman Rock- Rockwell. It's an image you all know the Thanksgiving dinner. However, it's an homage. It's not a parody, thankfully. Now, kind of on the train of thought we were talking about, we have a scene on pages 9 through 11 in which Jonathan and Martha have a conversation sitting on that porch swing I mentioned. Jonathan is afraid. As I mentioned, he's not a perfect man. He is afraid. He's not afraid of Clark. He is afraid for Clark. Clark has a lot going on. And Clark has a lot to figure out. Now that this has been revealed, it changes everything. Clark thought he just happened to be different, and up until that point, he thought he was the birth child of Jonathan and Martha. Now, he finds out not only are they not his parents, but he's from probably another planet that he has no conception of. Now, Clark, has, as I mentioned, has had a lot of things in his mind. He's been internally processing it um, with very few outward signs. It's all internal, and he's doing his best to present a normal front But Jonathan sees this as taking everything in stride. And Jonathan is kind of, he's opening his heart. He's as much as Jonathan can, because I've always seen Jonathan as somebody who is very quiet with his emotions. He has to process these feelings. He's not good at being sensitive. And he tells Martha that he's changing. The boy, he's different now. He's realizing change is about to come. And he, while he doesn't regret telling him, he just can't figure out what is about to happen. And that's real um, with any parent. Now, what Jonathan doesn't know is on the other side of the house, in Clark's room, laying in his bed, he can hear this. He can hear this conversation. He hears him when he says, there's so much we don't know, Martha. Every day he becomes stronger with powers and abilities that don't seem to have any limitations. What are we dealing with here? As I mentioned, there's no playbook for this. There's nothing to prepare these two simple people for what has been dropped, literally, almost literally, I should say, into their lap. They were just minding life, going about their day, and out of nowhere, a rocket. A baby. And now this baby is growing into a man. He's on the verge of becoming a man. He's still in high school, but he's close to becoming a man. What does that mean for somebody like him? I don't know that I would have the answer to that. I don't know that you would. Who would? And if there was a lot of parents, they would have him in potentially therapy. Who knows what? But thankfully, Jonathan and Martha were able to get as good a grip as they can on something like this. And it's their patience and their heart and their kindness that has allowed them to progress Clark to this point. Now, as I mentioned, Clark's laying in his bed. I love this image because it's quiet. It does evoke spring, a warm spring night, because the window's open. He's got a glass of water next to him. He's got the telescope looking out. Uh, it's a typical typical boy's room, too. We have a baseball player poster. We've got a calendar, which looks to have a attractive woman, a model airplane hanging. And on his desk is what looks to be an illuminated globe. I like this touch a lot. Because it says something to me. And I don't know if this was the intent. But to me, I interpret that as two different things. It could be Clark's worldview. For somebody like Clark... You know, the world is much smaller. He's from another planet. He's 
keenly aware in ways that other people aren't that there is a greater universe out here and Earth is just a minute part of that universe. And it could also be hinting at his future at the Daily Planet. My theory is the former, or it could be absolutely nothing. However, I'm here to tell you what this book means to me. And that globe, that scene, says a lot. I think a lot about him laying there, fretting about his future. He has no concept of Superman yet. He has no concept of a dual identity. He's just a kid. He's an 18-year-old, 17-18-year-old kid trying to figure out exactly what he's going to do with what he's been given, or what's been laid on him, really. Right now, his powers are not a gift. They are a curse. They make him different. Which is kind of a commonplace interpretation of Superman now. But at the time, this was fairly different. This was seeing Superman in a different, vulnerable state. And you get to know Clark as a person, even though we're viewing him externally. Now, the book progresses to the town of Smallville, which to me, is a character in this book in ways that we haven't seen before. Um, we get this two-page splash on pages 12 and 13, in which Clark, Lana, and Pete are heading to the general store to get their malt. It's classic Mayberry. You have Sam's Barbershop, Smallville General Store, the Bank of Kansas. It's everything you see on Andy Griffith and more. It's everything you dream of in a small town. I mean, you can hear the Glenn Miller music playing. <laughs> now, it is interesting to note that while this is based on the Man of Steel timeline set in a, roughly the very late 70s or the very early 80s, the design is timeless. And it would fit with even the original Golden Age interpretation of Superman. Smallville should be a time machine. It's an oasis from the modern world. It is a place in many, many ways, as alien to the cynical, jaded populace of the present as Krypton would be. Classic moments happen here. Clark is sitting in a barbershop when he discovers, oh, I have x-ray vision. We have Pete, as he walks in, rubbing this, this odd ornamental head of an elephant, wishing for a million dollars, something that will say a lot about Pete. We have a card game going on within the general store, which is... Once again, Norman Rockwell. The locals of the town seem to gather on their free time and just have a continuous game, something that will echo again and again and again. And Jonathan is narrating and telling us, well, Ed Carlman took over the general store after his father passed on. Tom Landers is a fix-it man. We get to know the characters in the town. And it brings the town to life. And we also see Clark completely missing that Lana really adores him. Lana is aware that something's going on with Clark. And that was something that was in Man of Steel itself. She was aware something was up. But it's a little subtle here, and Clark completely misses it. And Clark races a train. I love this moment. This is giving us all the classic moments. Um, it's very Superman the movie. The inspiration is clear. Now, if not for his powers, I think Clark would have been happy to stay in Smallville and settle down with Lana. Uh, maybe join in on the ongoing game of cards at the general store after a hard day's work at the farm. And it's funny that Pete is the one who can't wait to get out of this town and go to the big city of Metropolis. And in the biggest bit of irony, he's the one left behind. It reminds me very much of George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. I think it's a masterful touch, and it's a really great interpretation of Pete. 
and not out of line with the Pete that we would see in comics, but maybe just a, a nice nuance to the character. Now on pages in 19 and 20 are one of the centerpieces to this whole series to me. It's a linchpin. It's a scene that I adore. Um, it's a scene that represents the emotional epicenter of the story for me. Jonathan returns from while well, he was inside and Ma is looking out on the field where Clark is just standing in the distance, staring. And Jonathan simply says, I'll handle it, Martha. He walks up there and Clark simply looks and says, Pa, I'm scared. Now the benefit to, of being able to see Clark through Jonathan's eyes, to really get into Jonathan's head in a way that we haven't ever done before, is the key to this. Because we're seeing it externally, as I mentioned. Now the issue is narrated by Pa, which wasn't in the original concept. It wasn't until Jeff Loeb saw the pages and pages of empty panels that he decided to add the narration. I can't imagine this story without it. Now, we get a lot of good body language in the art. Tim Sale's selling this because we have Ma watching. And in two, it's a three-panel page here. We have over, over in the second panel, looking over Ma's shoulder, we see in the distance Pa and Clark talking. In the next panel, the sunset is beginning. So we know time has definitely passed. And the two are hugging. It's the masterstroke to this scene is that it's not laid out for us. We don't see the details of what's going to obviously be an emotional, lengthy talk between Pa and Clark. Only the fact that Jonathan promises, as the text reads, that he and his mom will love him always. Um, uh, this allows the reader to apply their own parental experience. And the story comes from, it becomes an analog for readers. We bring our own emotion to the table. And Loeb is just supplying the table. And for me, I saw a lot of my relationship with my dad in this scene. And suddenly Clark went from being just this great mythic character to somebody human, somebody real, somebody like me. And I've always taken that with me. That is something that's in my emotional briefcase. Um, we move from there. <laughs> <clears throat> to a fairly long sequence from pages 21 to 30 in which a twister comes to Smallville and Clark discovers that he can fly. He saves somebody. Not only is this the closest thing to an action sequence that we get, it's also the pivotal moment that gives Clark the direction to his destiny. While he understood that he was different before, while he knew he had a responsibility, this is when he glimpses that mission in vivid, high-definition clarity. Now, he sees it, but it takes him a long time to achieve that vision, to really define it and pursue it. The art, it masterfully displays this. Because much like City Slickers, in this moment, Clark has only one focus. focus. Saving others. That's his job. That's the only thing that matters. Clark goes from being scared, and he's flailing about in the, in the cyclone, calling for his paw. And he goes to focused flying. I showed this page to my wife. Because I've been talking about this book. And I, I just said, I love this book so much. And I showed this page. My wife's reaction is, I, I, don't, I don't know much about comics. But I can see that's something special. And you bet your bippy it is. The colors also sell the looming danger with a tornado. 
Now, I come from middle America. We've had tornadoes. I live about an hour away from Joplin, which was one of the biggest F5 tornadoes ever, and I've seen that damage. It's horrid. But I've also been in the climate of that weather. And looking at these pages, I can feel the pressure change, and I can really feel the claustrophobic nature of those types of storm clouds. And this sequence is sealed off by a, another emotional scene. There's a lot of these. This book is nothing if not an emotional roller coaster, but after saving somebody in town, seeing the absolute devastation it did to Smallville, Clark goes back to his parents. He rushes back to find the farm in disarray. The tractor is in the roof of the barn, and his parents are luckily in the cellar and safe. And the final panel of this sequence has him embracing his parents in the Technicolor sunset. That shift actually allows me to to breathe easier again, because we've had this looming storm cloud, and suddenly it's just like that storm finally passed, and now Clark has a choice to make. So, I mean, symbolically, the storm has passed. It's dealing with what the storm has wrought that Clark has to do, uh, both in the real text and within himself. And yet another piece of this. This book says so, so much. Pages 31 to 33, the aftermath, the choice that I mentioned, the phrase, I could have done more. It's a phrase that will haunt Clark, and it's a powerful echo of what will carry through his entire career as Superman. I often pictured the Alex Ross image from Superman Peace on Earth when Superman is slumped in his chair, looking defeated. Because for all the good that Superman does, for all the lives he saves and evil he stops, when he goes home to Clark Kent's apartment at the end of the day, the only thing he thinks is, I could have done more. While Clark's internal struggle has been, who am I? Now it's changed to who will I become? And how will I become him? It's like going from reactive to proactive. We see a turn in Clark's character that would take six seasons to occur on the show Smallville. It's incredibly compelling, and it's oddly ironic, but more on the irony later. And Clark approaches his pastor for advice. Now, Pastor Lindquist is somebody who will echo through not only this book, but some of the other material we'll be looking at in this episode. And while Pastor Lindquist is thinking on a human level, not aware that anything like Clark exists, Clark is really seeking some peace. He's trying to, he's seeking Superman is what it is. I'm going to call it what it is. And this is the point when he goes on that journey. And it's followed up quite expertly on pages 34, on page 34 with the graduation. So not only do we see Clark graduating to seeking out becoming Superman, seeking out his destiny proactively now, we see him transitioning from high school student to young adulthood. And with that comes, will he stay in Smallville or will he go? He goes, we know that. But we get another great scene on 35 through 38 of the book of Clark telling Lana his secret. Now this is something that was in Man of Steel. I think this version is much better. Because not only do we have this gorgeous panel on page 35 of Smallville just laid out like a beautiful blanket behind Lana and Clark on this hill and the kit farm down below, we get... 36 and 37, which is a two-page splash. 
One of two we've seen so far in this book, the Twister being one, now this, where Clark takes her flying. And the goodbye. From here on in this book, this issue is about goodbyes. Clark says goodbye, saying I will come back to Smallville, Lana kisses him, and we transition to saying goodbye to Smallville on pages 39 through 43, with some breathtaking scenes and one of my absolute favorite Superman scenes of all time. Clark uh, has his suitcase packed. They bought him a new suit. He's leaving Smallville. He's sitting with Ma on the swing, and he goes to say goodbye to Pa, who is standing in the field, much like we saw Clark saying, standing there, saying, I'm scared. And on a two-page splash, on page 42, Jonathan is looking out on this absolutely jaw-dropping Kansas sunset as the fields are spread out beyond them. And Clark simply asks his father, do you ever get tired of looking at that? And Jonathan simply replies, no, never have. Guess I never will. We turn this page and we have another two-page splash. This time of the Metropolis skyline. There's the Daily Planet, there's LexCorp, and I love this design of Metropolis. It's clean. All the lines are very clean, very simple. It does feel a lot like the Metropolis we see in Superman the Animated Series. The juxtaposition is, in Long Halloween and in Dark Victory, the Gotham was so gritty you felt like you were getting soot on your fingers, you know, just by reading the book. And here we have a clean, gorgeous Metropolis. We have transitioned seamlessly to Metropolis. And we get a familiar story on pages 44 and 45. Clark Kent working at the Daily Planet. There's Lois Lane, there's Jimmy Olsen, there's the Chief yelling. And just love it. So we got a seamless transition, and we finally have this wonderful end tag. The first time Superman fully appears, we have a young child, who's actually going to echo through some more issues, chasing his cat on a rooftop, or on a ledge, I should say. And he almost falls down, but Superman catches him, gives him back his hat, and the kid says, wow, cool costume. And in one single page splash, Superman is flying above him and simply says, my mom made it for me. So while we're getting the quote-unquote debut of Superman, he's still Clark. He's still tied back to his mom. And the issue wraps up with Lex Luthor looking out over his city, glaring, ready to crush the Man of Steel, who is about to take, in his eyes, everything away from him. Now looking at the book overall, this book really fills in some gaps for the Man of Steel, but... I think to try and pinpoint exactly where these events take place in that context takes away from the story. It could be read independent of continuity and serve absolutely fine, but having read the Man of Steel miniseries does provide a very, very small bit of enhancement. Now truly, this issue is not a Superman story, but a Clark Kent story. While Clark understands that he is different at the onset of the issue, he doesn't understand how that can help the world until he is caught in that tornado. And it isn't defined within the pages, but once again, it defers a bit to either the reader's own imagination or the Man of Steel, depending on where the individual is approaching the book from. Overall, entering into this story took a bit of getting used to. Sale's stylized art, especially his depiction of Superman as very large and bulky, didn't immediately have me, because it didn't match what was in the Superman comics during the era. However, that unfamiliarity became the book's strength because it allows the reader to shed a lot of preconceived notions about the character and really see Clark Kent as the proto-Superman, giving this issue a particularly unique voice in the series. 
the colors really do escalate the art beyond what was being seen in most comics. It places the style somewhere above standard comic book art, but not quite to the Alex Ross detail level. The use of splash pages really do what they should, and what Loeb intended, which is give us the grandeur and epic scale of the Superman story, and they are used to nearly perfect precision, every time. Scenes such as Clark and the Cyclone, the Kansas sunset changing to the Metropolis skyline, really take your breath away. In an age where splashes are used to fill up space, these were used to make you believe that a man can fly. And let me tell you, I believe. And that is something that when I close this book, I can hang my hat on. That this Clark Kent was somebody who went through some similar growing pains as I did, just on a bigger, more epic scale. It achieves making Clark every bit as relatable and affable as a human as he is as wonderful and inspiring a superhero. By walking a razor-thin line between human coming-of-age storytelling and American tell-tale scope, we understand Clark in a way that perhaps we hadn't before. We have no scheming villain, at least not till the last page. The romance is inherent between Lana and Clark and doesn't become a major factor, and yet this issue was as thrilling and as, as exciting as it gets because we're on a personal journey. We want to know Clark Kent, and by viewing his experience through the eyes of Jonathan Kent, we could take a real-world view of the character. Jonathan doesn't fully understand Clark's journey, but he knows the road he's on, and he can only put out the pieces of what is going on in Clark's head together as best he can, and we are along for that ride. It is masterful storytelling in both script and art, and the colors look in some places like chalk drawings or watercolors in others, and it really evokes a dreamlike state where anything is possible and really, that is a lot of Superman's appeal. The idea that anything is possible. Including an alien with an obscene amount of power coming to Earth to be a guardian angel, choosing to use all of his might to protect us. And that's something that gets addressed in Book 2, Summer. The cover to Book 2 once again shows Superman flying towards the reader. This time, though, he is a little bit askew with Metropolis behind him. The back cover is a silhouette of Clark leaning against the tree, now in full bloom. And the text reads, A cynical reporter, dazzled by a newcomer to the big city. A business magnate, enraged by a rival who can't be conquered. And a hero who may be the loneliest man in Metropolis. Witness the transformation of the man of tomorrow from figure of mystery to guardian angel of an entire city. Now, the book opens differently. <laughs> We're on a different scale now. We open with Superman's Metropolis on pages 1 to 3. Um very reminiscent of the animated series. A long shot of the city, a closer shot of a large crowd, and then tight on several people looking up in the sky, which is what you would do in Metropolis, and then two and three, a full two-page splash of Superman, who is once again askew, going from the lower left-hand corner where his feet are to the upper right-hand corner with his head, covering the whole page as big and large and in charge as you can get. Can you hear the John Williams music? Because this is a perfect Superman reveal, it's, and it's a Metropolis, once again, right out of Superman the Animated Series. And we see LexCorp and the Daily Planets side by side in the silhouette, which is, well, what it should be. That's what defines Metropolis' skyline. We are then segued directly to a sequence in which Superman realizes a large missile is coming right for the city and flies up to greet it. In a way only Superman can, stopping it with his bare hands. 
on another two-page splash. Superman actually flies the missile out to space, throws it, and blows up, and then, looking at the Earth, beams proudly. Now, we're in the myth itself. Last issue was the human. That was the journey beginning. That was actually the journey being defined, to some extent. So now we're in the Superman myth. And it's perfect. It's it's classic. Um, now both splashes in this in this missile sequence, both him catching the missile and both him looking at the Earth proudly, are once again breathtaking. Um, the missile is the bulk of the page, with Superman being smaller in the lower left-hand corner, and we see just a slight, colorful reflection in the missile's metal shell. It's just gorgeous. I mean, I I, I can't tell you, <laughs> I can't get all articulate about it, but it is just gorgeous. Just as the other two-page splash in this single sequence is, um, this time Superman is the larger of the two, with Earth being smaller. They are, if you could put them side by side without ripping out the pages, they're fairly balanced. If you put these two side by side, Superman small against the missile, against human tyranny, and Superman large against the Earth, looking at it just like he saw that globe in issue one. We have a, a narration this time by Lois Lane. And Lois's doubt or questioning of Superman makes me rethink how a being like him would be perceived. He's looking at Earth, it's home, but Earth doesn't necessarily see him that way. And I've always found it fascinating. I'm going to talk about more, a little bit more about that. Let me get back on track. Um, 12 to 16, we see Superman dive down into the depths of the water and pluck the very large submarine out of the water. The submarine that fired the missile. One detail that I just love about this sequence is as he is diving, as he is beginning his descent... Superman takes a second to wave at a passing plane. And it is pure Superman. We're in a world that is absolutely 100% the quintessence of Superman. And then we get another scene on pages 17 to 20 of Superman delivering the sub to Metropolis Air Base. Which includes another two-page splash. This time the sub is even bigger than the missile. And Superman is small, but yet he's lifting it like it's nothing. And that's exactly what you want to see with Superman, because you're looking at it from the ground where all the soldiers are. You're seeing what they're seeing. You're seeing it almost like Lex Luthor is, because it's Lex Luthor's point of view. And certainly, if you think about this in a real, real world context, Superman is floating above you with this giant building-sized sub saying, I don't want anybody to get hurt. I just want to sit this down. It's uh, delivering exactly what it should, which is wonderment. And this segues into a hostage situation because Lois Lane has stowed aboard said sub. Now, this is a tense standoff with a hostage holding a gun to Lois Lane's head, Superman standing next to Luthor, Luthor trying to say we can, ne we can negotiate with anyone, even terrorists. Now, between syllables of the word terrorist, Superman has already swooped in, grabbed the gun, and crushed it. Well... Then Lois finishes off the terrorist, which I think is wonderful. And I love this shot of Superman saying, and thank you, Miss Lane. Beaming proudly at his, well, one day would-be wife. It's pure Lois. And then we get Superman snubbing Luthor as he's trying to say, hey, who's going to pay to get this off the tarmac here? Nobody snubs Luthor yet. But, well, we know how that works out. Um, we also get a scene in which Superman flies Lois to the Daily Planet. 
And I just love that she's saying, my hair, my shoes, my god. It's whimsy. Now it's not Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder. Can you read my mind? But it is Lois swooning. And then we get one scene, one quick scene at the Daily Planet, which is, once again, the essence of Superman. Clark is coming out of the supply closet. Uh, Lois is kind of blowing him off. Fantastic. It's exactly what you would want from a Superman sequence. Now, that was a bombastic introduction. That was pure Superman. It was everything you'd want in a story. And yet, now we segue into exactly what the story is about. It is Clark Kent coming home with a bag full of groceries. Two, three, forty-four Clinton, by the way. And very quietly looking around his lonely studio apartment, making a sandwich and laying in bed, thinking, well, basically, I'm lonely. I was always really taken with this scene. Um, it is a bit of a derivative of the scene from Lois and Clark, the pilot, but once again we're going from this bombastic, huge, epic-scale Superman scene to the Clark that we met last issue. Yet, we see Superman going to this Clark, a Clark that is being himself, eating a sandwich in a simple studio apartment, his guard is down. That's how we know him. How does the world see him? Well, Lois is telling us. And then we return to Smallville. He goes home to eat dinner because he's lonely. He greets Pa in the field. Another two-page splash of a gorgeous Kansas landscape. He goes back to where the story left off last issue. Because, as I mentioned, at the heart of this story is Smallville. And it is, as I mentioned, a character in itself. And it's also Clark's core. That's where his values and his origins are. Everything that makes him Superman is here. And we get a little bit caught up on pages 33 to 37. It doesn't miss its beats. It, it picks up everything it sat down last issue. We return to Lana's house with Clark holding a, a bunch of flowers, only to find that, well, Lana's left town. And Pastor Lindquist is maintaining the, the uh, yard, which I thought was great. Um, Pete's still here which is one of the saddest things. Uh, the guys are still playing cards at the general store, probably always will be. Pete's still here. So now, Clark has the question. How can he be Superman and Clark Kent? Now we are dealing with the dual identity that he's creating. And we're back to that core. We've now got two things going on in this issue. Two major points. One, Superman being Superman. Two, Clark Kent being Clark Kent. These two haven't merged yet. Clark has not found that perfect balance. He has his mission, but he doesn't necessarily know how to share that in a regular life. There's the Superman we know, and then there's the Clark Kent we know. I love this, uh, the way it's playing out. Um, now we return to Metropolis on pages 38 to 48, back chemical fire, where Superman saves a victim, even with the interference of Lex Luthor's new armored soldiers. We get this wonderful moment of Superman spinning the fire with Lois saying that this is a job for Superman. Once again, we're back to the big bombastic Superman action. And in the end, Lex decides to use this because he saves this victim who becomes enamored with Superman, calls him her angel. And Lex comes to where the woman is looking at all these great pictures of Superman. He's about to manipulate it. So once again, we're, we're tagged at the end with Lex Luthor slowly scheming. 
and yet we're dealing with two sides of the same coin with Clark and Superman. With this issue, we took the exact same elements of last issue and layered in Metropolis, playing with the juxtaposition from the end of the first book. Much like the color schemes used in Superman the movie, Metropolis is in more muted tones, making Superman, in full costume, stand out even more. While the first part of the book is one of the most traditional Superman adventure scenes you're going to find, it takes its time to segue to the internal struggle of Clark Kent. And we return to Smallville, in a lot of ways picking up the threads from the first issue and just running with them. Make no mistake, this is a Clark Kent at the beginning of his career, and there is no template on how to be Superman, nothing to follow. He has to make that up. But it is Clark Kent the man who is the story, while the narration by Lois adds a very different story on the flip side. Lois says that Superman is too good to be true. He has turned her entire perception on its ear, changing not only her personal feelings, but the way she approaches journalism. At parts of the narration, she compares Superman to Santa Claus and Prince Charming. He's a myth, a living myth to the outside observer. But our experience as readers puts her external views of Superman as being this protean figure into a completely different landscape. Um, for us, this is a story of Clark Kent, our friend, and the path he's on, a road that is forming in front of him as he moves forward. For Lois, while she has a lot of insight, it's only to the context that Superman exists from the outside, and we, the readers, are privy to the man underneath the armor, his insecurities, and the frailty. When people say that Superman is a character without weakness, a character that is hard to write, aside from that pesky meteor, of course, I want to throw this into their face. He's as fragile as you or I underneath. None of us enter the world with a clear definition of who we are or what it is we were put here to do. Even if we do manage to know ourselves completely and what we want to do, there is still the semantics of going from point A to point B. And especially as comic book fans, we often feel out of place. Guess what? Young Clark Kent is going through that here. Like many of us, Clark projects this image of Superman, a hero who can handle anything and who isn't afraid, but he doesn't show the world that he is lonely. He doesn't show them that he misses Lana, and he feels like the world is maybe moving just too fast sometimes. To those that say Superman is impossible to write or relate to, you simply are not looking in the right place. Because it's beneath that blue suit that the real story happens, and Jeff Loeb proves it. By showing us the traditional Superman at the onset of the issue, and then fading to Smallville, we are drawn into the story expecting the same old, same old expecting the traditional and yet it is as if the character opens up to us because we're learning to integrate the standard Superman and Metropolis material with what we saw last issue and the two play off of each other organically we're dipping more and more into the world of Superman but we're still grounded by what has come so far in this story and all the while Lex Luthor is going from an annoyance to a threat that will be borne out in the next issue and in a way that will change how Superman sees the world. So right after this podcast promo and me getting something to drink, I'll be back and we will see the story go from the heat of summer to the plummeting temperatures of autumn in book three. 
up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero Superman 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 Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring the thrilling adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, The New 52 Adventures of Superman, Superman Forever Radio, I've got a few things to say about Superman. The Kara's World Podcast. The Superman Vidcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Danny Sapp, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we are back for the second half of Superman for All Seasons. So far, we have seen Clark Kent become a man and start the journey that will bring him to Superman. He has come to Metropolis, now he's debuted as a superhero and as a mild-mannered reporter, but he's still unsure of his place in this brave new world, and he's still coming back to the place he grew up to find answers. Loeb and Sale have given us a glimpse beneath Superman's armor, with insightful looks at the boy that would be Superman via Jonathan Kent and the Man of Steel from public perception in Lois Lane's narration. Superman has faced a massive tornado, a giant missile, and a chemical fire, but he hasn't faced down his arch-nemesis, and he doesn't know what danger lurks within the twisted mind of Lex Luthor. But he's about to find out in Superman for All Seasons Book 3. Fall. On the front cover of Book 3, Superman flies from the upper left corner of the cover towards LexCorp Towers in the lower right-hand corner, with only his symbol, red trunks, and red cape showing with the rest in black silhouette. Storm clouds rage over Metropolis as lightning strikes the city. Now the back cover has Clark in a scarf reading a book at a tree, which is losing its leaves. The text reads, The first citizen of Metropolis bowed, but not yet beaten an entire city felled by a foe that Superman cannot battle, and a moment in which Superman learns that not all of lives can be saved. This is the gripping story of Superman's dread realization that even his powers are not always enough. Honestly, I have less to say about this issue than any other in this series. While I'm most affected by the first issue, I like the comparison made in Book 2 of Superman's large-scale world against Clark's small-town origin. 
The third issue proves to be the second act of the overall story. And it's from Luthor's point of view. He is the one doing the narration. So far, he's been a minor force in this book, but now that thread comes to a head. And we open with a segment here on pages 1 through 7 in which Lex talks about a love affair. It's immediately after Luthor's arrest in Man of Steel number 4, and for the first time, Luthor has been beaten, and his love, Metropolis, has been turned against him. Luthor is booked and then released, coming across Superman on his helicopter ride home. Now, one thing, a piece of text I do want to talk about is Lex talking about this being a love story. Right here at the first page, he states, This is a love story, not between a man and a woman, but between a man and a city. My city. Metropolis. Before Superman came along, Lex was it. He was Mr. Metropolis. Um, He owned the city, uh, partially, literally, but he had its captivated. Even in previous issues, we saw Pete Ross wonder about the mythical Lex Luthor. Lana, in the first issue, even wonders if Lex Luthor exists or if he's just a myth. Very much, he was... In his own way, a proto-Superman. This public figure who, instead of doing good, really created the illusion of doing good while being a total jerk. And Luthor talks about loving this city. But that's not true. That's just not true. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. We actually get a scene... Right after this, where Luthor returns to his own personal fortress of solitude, right after Superman kind of counters the pickup truck, or pickup truck, helicopter that's heading back. Um, this scene really is a reflection of Luthor versus Clark. Where Clark returns to Smallville to collect himself, Luthor goes home to his tower. And we're seeing panels here. Uh, and this is on pages 8 through 14, where Luthor stands in his office. The office is very massive, and Luthor is shown very tiny. He drinks wine, he takes a shower, it's all alone, and he has somebody shaving his face. Now, this is a scene right out of Scarface, where somebody nicks Robert De Niro's Al Capone. Um, it's almost beat for beat here, where it nicks um, this person, probably knowing that Luthor isn't so forgiving, usually just starts staggering, oh sir, I'm so sorry. And his simple statement is, there's nothing to be sorry about. You made a mistake. I forgive you. Where we saw Clark go into the barber shop in issue one, and it's a friendly place where he has a bit of a discovery of his x-ray vision, uh, powers that he's not yet discovered. Here we kind of have the opposite number. Lex is discovering in his own way a bit of a weakness um, that he can bleed. In his own head, I'm not even sure if Lex really accepts that on some days prior to this point. Um, He knows he's wounded. And you know what? He knows Superman has wounded him. He's put this rift between him and the people of the city. He's made him a laughingstock on top of that by arresting him. Now, really looking here, we go to a sequence where Lex just works and works and works. Um, It's not clear if he's working on the plan that's going to come to fruition momentarily or if he's just doing his job. I always get the feeling that Lex really is industrious. He really does sit down and go alone. The contradiction here, or the the comparison I want to make is Lex is alone. Clark goes to Metropolis and people know him. Lex goes to Tower, people know him, 
but they don't flock to him. He pushes them away where Clark embraces his past. He embraces the people around him. And of course, Superman shows up and does the whole hovering thing. Because that's what Superman does. Yeah, this is a scene right out of Lois and Clark and out of Superman the Animated Series. It's not unwelcome here. I'm not uh, upset to see it. I'm just not terribly excited to see it. So I'm not going to give a I'm not going to throw a lot of criticism cuz really I just want to gush about this series and talk about it. Um we progress from there to pages 14 and 17 where Vaughn, who we saw last issue, the person that Superman rescued from the chemical fire who looks at Superman as her angel is being subjected horrifically, I might add, to a lot of images of Superman. Uh, propaganda for Superman, which is kind of odd when you think about it, but her eyes are literally pried open. She can't shut them. She's forced to watch all these images. Now, the imagery here is absolutely off. phenomenal here on 16 and 17. Another two-page splash. She is surrounded by this mega IMAX screen. On the left-hand side, we see Superman in his iconic pose from Action Comics number one. On the right-hand side, we see him with bullets deflecting off of him, iconic images, and then what I presume is him saving her wrapped in a blanket. And there are words, the entire, look up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman. Superman, I mean, it's the entire bit from the animated series, uh, from the Fleischers, and from the radio show. It's horrific, and that kind of proves what I was saying. Luthor doesn't care about people. He doesn't love this city. Um, we get another scene at the Daily Planet where Clark is writing a letter to Ma and Pa Kent, asks, and, and he asks them about LL, Lana Lang. Lois, snooping around, um, gets caught. And Clark is drawn to be, even in his Clark Kent guys, really imposing. Sales Superman is big, he's beefy, and it's hard to get used to, as I mentioned, because some of the proportions on the face are different. By the time you've gotten to this point, you're rolling with it. This is what Superman looks like. You're in this world. But it is kind of where we get the turn of the plot. 19 through 25, we see this little argument starting with Lois, and that's interspersed page by page with LexCorp Tower, and we see Truth. On the next page, we see Lex looking out the window, holding a snifter, saying Justice, as Lois falls into Clark's arms. And then we get a two-page spread of the entire Daily Planet office, Jimmy Olsen, falling down sick and Clark catches her in his arms and tries to figure out what's happening and finally we get the the punchline a full page one page splash of Luthor saying and the American way he stabbed him he stabbed him in a way that he Clark just was not ready for and it is staggering now Clark goes directly into action this is a job for Superman, after all. He flies out to the city. It's not just happening at these offices. It's everywhere. It's citywide. And he notices a train that's going out of control because the person driving it is passed out. And we get just a gorgeous sequence of Clark stopping the train. Two-page splash, as usual, which is a, once again being used as appropriately as humanly possible with Clark just stopping this train. It's buckling under the weight. Glasses flying. Just a fantastic, staggering image. And then we find out that there is a virus. It's hitting the city. We head to HACSA, which I'm not sure what that stands for, but I would assume health and safety. And there's a virus. It's airborne. They don't know what to do, so guess what? Superman has to go and ask for Lex Luthor's help. Now, Luthor, his tower, 
it's all sealed. It's in a controlled environment due to terrorism. So Superman's outside the glass. He's once again floating outside the office. This time, the demeanor's different. He's not defiant. He is not coming to badger Lex. And this scene really, to me, when he asks Lex for help, when he says, you know, I bet if I smash this glass, LexCorp employees will show up with the antidote, but he stops. Superman stops because he cannot lose faith. And he says, I can't chance that. I can't be like you. So he has to ask for help. There's strike one. Luthor's already broken his pride by making him have to come and ask for his help. But Luthor has a plan. Remember Vaughn? Her name is Jenny Vaughn. He has turned her into Toxin. She has the antidote. So Superman is flying her around the city, curing people. Unfortunately, when he returns to LexCorp offices, Vaughn drops dead. And it's a scene in which Superman is cradling this poor woman that gets me. Because Luthor, in shadow, with lightning striking all around them, stands imposing. And Superman is beaten because in the lower right-hand corner, he's kneeling. We see only his head and his sad expression. And from here on in, these next few pages, all the way through thirty—pardon uh, me, through page 46, Luthor is standing above him. It's a subtle, subtle thing they do. And really, on my initial, you know, read-through for my own entertainment, I never would have caught it. But as I'm trying to analyze this, as I'm trying to convey how great this story is, even the weakest issue, which I believe is this one, in my opinion, it still has these great subtleties. And the thing is, we start with, with Lex in the background here. On the next page, we have two panels where he's still hovering over Superman. But we get to the final page of this sequence, and Lex is full-page splash, stating, Go back wherever you came from before you fail us all. Superman is beaten. In his own mind, it comes back to, I could have done more. He could have saved the city and Toxin if he had known. He... He, he, he hasn't dealt with failure like this yet. Even with the cyclone that we saw, he still managed to save people. Here, while the city is saved, it lost that one life. The one life of the woman who was trying to help, trying to make things right with him. Someone who looked at him as her guardian angel. He completely failed that person. And we see Lex Luthor get a fairly decisive victory. And in the end... Clark comes back home. He comes back to Smallville where Jonathan and Martha are sitting once again on the on the porch swing. And he stands there and says, I think I need to stay here in Smallville for a while. Now to clarify, I say this issue is the weakest of the bunch, but that doesn't make it a bad read. Because getting into Luthor's head, especially the Luthor from the early onset of Superman's career, is fascinating. This man who quote-unquote, loves his city, or so he thinks. Luther loves possessing the city. He loves the power, he loves the prestige, but it's clear, as I mentioned from his treatment of Jenny Vaughn, that he is ready, willing, and able to sacrifice people to keep that grip. And the thing is, does Lex really have a conception of love? I mean, really, he talks about how his father would beat him just to make him cry. This is the man's emotional... emotional template so to speak. He is... The father is somebody who is a huge influence on Lex in a defiant way. He created this defiant person 
who is willing to conquer, he's willing to walk through fire just to make people see his point of view. And that is a fairly dangerous person. So I think for Lex, the concept of love is conquering. It's making people subordinate, making them in, a, in their own way kneel. So for his part, Lex is very, very similar to General Zod. From the from Superman two, um, now Luthor's plan. It's one of the harshest things I've seen in Superman, um, in the lore. At least it was at this point. I mean, we've seen some things go down, but what he does, it's genius. And I question whether Lex knows what he's really doing. I think to some extent, yes. Some extent, no. Because Lex now knows he, he's not able to physically hurt Superman. At least, not yet. I mean, eventually, and, and fairly soon in this timeline, he's going to get a certain kryptonite ring that's going to come his way and kind of change that a little bit. He's going to be a little bit more aware of how Superman works on a scientific level. Here, he just knows that this is a guy who has embarrassed him, who has taken his adulation away, and he's starting to piece together that Superman can't be human. But he doesn't really want to physically hurt Superman. That's not his goal. That's not good enough for Lex. He wants to destroy Superman and break him inter internally. He wants to make Superman kneel. And it all comes back to that. He wants Superman to be his subordinate. He wants Superman on his knees. And he gets it. Literally and figuratively. Um, here, we see Loeb bring to fruition the blow to the man beneath the armor. That can truly break Clark. We know Clark isn't fully defined as Superman. Yes, he has the costume, he has that image, he kind of has the mission statement, but this is a Superman that qu hasn't quite finished baking yet. He hasn't solidified. It's like cement. He has not fully dried. He's got the form of a brick, but he hasn't fully become a brick. Metaphors are fun. Clark doesn't know fully what being Superman means. He only knows his mission and that he cares about people, and he wants to help. He's filled with compassion. He's filled with with the com compulsion to do good. Luthor, without really knowing this, strikes at just the right weak spot in the proverbial armor to cripple Superman emotionally. This is the plot we need. The test. The character's weak spot. It's a bit textbook, but that doesn't diminish the impact of that final scene when Clark steps onto Monpa's porch, his shoulders slumped, saying that he needs to stay in Smallville for a while. And it's here, with our return to the beginning, that we return to Luthor's words from page one. We begin seeing a level of symmetry appear. And here at the end, once again, this was a love story. Like all good love stories, it was full of betrayal, anger, tragedy, and revenge. Lex successfully got his revenge on Superman. He stabbed him through the heart, if not literally, metaphorically. And I kind of want to talk about the covers so far. 
because there's a lot of symbolism here. In the first issue's cover, we had a Superman coming right down the middle of the page, balanced, and Smallville was in the backdrop. In the second book's cover, he was flying upward, askew, but upward, and, and the scene was bright. Metropolis was behind him, balanced between the Daily Planet and LexCorp Tower. Here, with this issue, Superman flies down, back to the city, directly to LexCorp Tower, with no Daily Planet. This is his descent into darkness. Everything is off balance. And now, with our fourth and final book, we finally see the symbolic resolution of what these covers have been doing with book four, Winter. This time, the front cover has Smallville, rather than the Kent Farm, and it's covered in snow, and Superman stands, poised for action above the image. This is a balanced Man of Steel, back where he started, but with a different, grounded approach, and unlike most of the covers, he looks ready for action. He's got a certain look to his face, a certain determination. The back cover has Clark walking in the snow away from the tree. It reads, a small town girl torn apart by the knowledge that her childhood friend is the Man of Steel, a force of nature threatening to tear apart everything a Kansas community has struggled to achieve, and a hero who must learn that he cannot run away from his problems or his responsibilities. Experience the final chapter in the majestic tale of Superman's transformation from country boy to the world's greatest hero. I'm a big fan of symmetry in storytelling. I'm a big fan of when you come to the end, much like the hero's journey, you are back at the beginning and you are changed. I like seeing that. I like that in my storytelling. And we really do get that in spades in this issue, which makes me so happy. We start off in pages one through three, back at the end of issue one in a lot of ways. The boy we saw from that issue is on a rooftop playing with snowballs. His name is Trevor Burbank, for the record. But instead of Superman coming, one of Lex's armored core shows up and says, Citizen, stay inside. Lex Corp is concerned for your safety. The boy is terrified and, of course, does what it does. And in the background, we see that the Welcome to Metropolis sign that was predominantly shown in issue three is being covered up by a large billboard that says HCA, there for you always, which I assume is is uh, an insurance. Metropolis has moved on. Now, it doesn't seem like it's been a long time since Clark has gone, a couple of weeks, but in pages four through seven, we check in on Lex, who is quite happy, all is well, no sign of Superman. And then on page five through seven, Lois is at the Daily Planet noticing, hey, Superman's gone, Clark's gone, what up with that? And of course, she thinks to herself, Lois Lane, that's the stupidest idea in the world. The funny thing is, this scene is fantastic because it's juxtaposed against Lana's narration. Uh, Lana is looking at Clark this time, and she writes here, It took me a long time to understand what happened that night, going back to the night that he revealed his secret, and more important, why it happened. Clark didn't mean to frighten me or disappoint me or make me angry or any of the other things I've had to work through. Clark was doing what best friends and only best friends do for each other. He shared with me the greatest secret that Clark can as Superman. 
the actual the actual caption that says Clark Kent is Superman is right above Lois saying Lois saying that's the stupidest idea in the world. And I don't think that's meant to put Lois down. I think that's meant at this time to show that to show it that at this time Lana was underneath that armor. Now Lois would of course by this by the time this was published be married to Superman. Lois would know his secret and kind of take over this role from Lana um, through much much drama. But it shows that Lana was Clark's first love in a lot of ways, Clark's first best friend, and the person he turns to here. Um, because when he's back in Smallville, Lana is apparently back too, which would kind of coincide with the Man of Steel once again. And they decide to go ice skating, and there's not much to this scene. Um, we're once again back on the front porch. They walk across a bridge that will be important later in the story. But the the best part of this shot right here is they decide to make snow angels. And of course Superman's looks like, well, of course Clark's look like, looks like Superman. Is what it is. Uh, Lana points that out. And I think in a lot of ways, even in Smallville at this point, Superman still looms over Clark. And in in some aspects... I wonder if Clark is intimidated by himself or the image of Superman. I've heard of celebrities kind of not prepared for fame. They shot to, you know, shot to the the famous level too fast. Now, multiply that by a million. And that's what you have with Superman. Nobody could be prepared for that level. So, I guess it's Superman still processing this. And the part that I love that that's really gets to me is our return to Smallville proper on pages 12 through 16. And the reason I like this is that it mirrors pages 12 through 15 in issue one. Now, in a lot of ways, we are looking at the same thing through a different point of view. For example, we have the spread of the town, as I mentioned, the whole, the Norman Rockwell, Mayberry-looking Smallville, Kansas National Bank, there's the Smallville General Store, yet where we were coming down the street, walking towards it last time, we have Clark and Lana coming from the right, so we actually see more here to the right. It's from a different angle, because we have Jane's Cafe, in the background we see Lander's Fix-It Shop. But it matches up. This is the right where the two-page splash happened last time in issue one. Um, we have, once again, Clark, Lana, and Pete entering the general store, taking a seat. Very similar in pacing, in the number of panels, as we saw in issue one, yet everything's from a different angle. And I have returned to places that I saw in my childhood. Um, they talk about, you know, returning to, to a school that you went to, and everything's smaller because you've gotten bigger. This is kind of that in a way. You don't see things as an adult like you did when you were a child. And I like that this is being conveyed subtly. Now, in some cases we have a reverse angle behind the counter. The card game is still going on. And this is where Pete finally lashes out at Clark. Because they invite Clark to play the game and Pete simply says, go ahead Clark, we'll come back for you in 20, 30 years. Because to Pete, who in issue one wanted nothing more than to get out of Smallville, Clark has done the ultimate disservice to himself, to his friend, to the town. 
Clark made it out of town. He got to the big city. He was in a, a place in the big city that was acceptable, that was successful. And what did he do in Pete's eyes? Pete, not knowing the Superman aspect, Clark gave up and came back home to be just like everybody else. And to that, Pete is... To Pete, that's unacceptable. Now, Lana understands a little bit more, but here we have this juxtaposed because we had Clark sitting in the barber shop, finding his x-ray vision. Here, Clark is his eyes closed. Clark is in glasses on top of that. So it's, it's kind of an opposite number. Now, Lana is staying with the Kents, and... When we jump to 16 to 21, we have another storm, a winter storm brewing. And Martha's cooking dinner. Chief Parker comes to say, hey, uh, I think the dam's about to break. Uh, you may want to get to the church. Uh, but of course, Clark being Clark, he doesn't think much of it. And this is where the Pens find out in a masterful scene that Lana knows. Because she out of nowhere says, nothing like having a son who could change the course of mighty rivers. There's a beat. And Clark's like, well, she knows. The parents are like, she knows. And Lana's, I know. I, it, it reads better. But let me get to the, to the page I really want to talk about. Page 22 is an exact mirror of Clark laying in bed as Jonathan and Martha had their conversation in issue one. Now, I mentioned there we had a globe. The globe is turned off here. The window is shut. The decorum is completely different. The posters are gone. Uh, the model is gone. The calendar is gone. It's neat. It's tidy. And Clark is in the exact same pose. This time he has a scrapbook on his on his leg on his belly. And this is where a speech happens that ties it all together. This is where Jonathan Kent finds that answer he was struggling to find in the field in in issue one with the stump. Because he points out, hey, my first year when the corn came up, I was the talk of the county. But I got cocky, so the next year, I had two fields go fallow. And you know, I'd like to think, over time, I've become a pretty good farmer. Over time. He's saying, look, Clark, you've really got to put some time into this. You've got to get some experience under your belt. You can't just have the one failure set you back that far. And Jonathan is, I mean, I made a big point of him being imperfect. He's an imperfect man. But he's had time to think about this. He's had time to put the right pieces together. Now, as I mentioned, we have another flood. And this one has a reversal of Clark and Lana's goodbye in issue one. Because Clark is in full Superman gear. Um, and once again, we have the long kiss. Now, that's a minor mirror. But what really gets me is just the simple line, I see hope. Because Clark goes to work as Superman with this flood. And as the card players are floating down the street, they look up and there's Superman. That's what Superman is to me. Superman is something where you, you look and in this bleak time where everything is flooding, where it could be very very easy to give up and just accept that it's all gonna go to crap you look up 
and you see this one person, and, and in real life, people have this person, but you look up and you see that person, and you know it's all right, whether emotionally or you know, in this case, super, you know, Superman sealing the dam. It's there. That's the part of Superman that I I, I hold very dear. Um, and it, this also, with the flood coming back, ties back to the cyclone because. You know, we had that in issue one, and there was a line in issue one that really brings this home. And that's Pa saying, nature's always going to get even. He's always going to, she's always going to settle the score. And here, once again, we have Superman fighting nature. And it could be very easy to criticize that. You know, we talk about Superman Returns, where they're lifting, you know, Superman fights an island in the third act and then goes in the hospital. However, with nature, I will defy you. Because... In a day and age where technology can fit in our hands that put people on the moon, because there's more technology in your smartphone than there were on most of the early NASA rockets, we still can't stop the damage of a tornado, of a hurricane, of a massive winter storm. We have no way to fight back to nature. Nature is bigger than us and as Paul said it will always settle the score so putting Superman up against nature makes absolutely perfect sense to me I'm good with that it it's we're, we're fine um, and once again tying back to kind of what we saw with that cyclone Clark always comes back to what matters most his ma his pa the people he cares about and the bridge I mentioned earlier, as Ma and Pa Kent, along with Lana and the dog, try to cross it, gets washed away. And Pa falls out of the truck. Truck is hanging there, and of course Superman flies in, saves the truck. And we have this terrifying moment where Pa is caught on a piece of driftwood. Something that really is subtle came to me. Clark swoops in, he carries Pa. He's carrying Pa, much like you would carry a baby. He's got him in his cradled in his arms. This echoes a scene on page 20 of issue 1 when Jonathan talks about Clark growing up and talks about holding Clark as a baby. And back to that cyclone. This is very much the the actual personification of Marlon Brando's line, the father becomes the son and the son becomes the father. Now this adult Superman is holding his father in his arms. And don't worry, the dog is okay too. And then we get to Pastor Lindquist, the gathering of, of people at the church. And we he's taught, you know, giving us the resounding Independence Day speech about how we've lost things. But we can be great, as he says, I'm just going to quote it, we can be grateful for the seasons, no matter how cruel or harsh they may seem. For it is only through their passage that we can truly appreciate the future. And we get it. Clark gets it. And so we come towards the end where we're coming back the way we came. Because here on page 40 and 41, we have this two-page splash that mirrors the very, well, pages two and three of issue one with the farm. Now it's covered in snow. Jonathan and Martha are on the porch. The afghan is still there, but the dog bowls are gone. The pie is no longer in the window. We have ice skates and a sled. And this time, we see Superman flying away, back to his destiny. 
and in the yard, matching it perfectly with a panel along the bottom here, instead of Clark calling for Pa, Lana is calling, take care, Clark. And because, once again, we're coming back the way we came. We have another two-page splash on pages 42 and 43 of the pretty much the same angle of Metropolis as we first saw it way back in issue one. Um, Daily Planet and LexCorp. And now the Daily Planet's actually a little bit more in the foreground. So it's not actually the same angle, I stand corrected, but Superman is flying in. Somehow, in a lot of ways, the world remains the same. Because Superman comes back to Metropolis. It's still there. It's still presented in the way that we were introduced to it. And we're pretty much kind of like the way we saw in issue one. We have a very classic Daily Planet. Clark turns in a story about Superman stopping the flood in Smallville, which ticks Lois off, as well it should. And here's just a masterful... The, the only way this could end, okay? I'm not going to use the word masterful again because I've used that way too much. We're back to little Trevor Burbank, which is at the beginning of this issue. We saw him at the end of issue one. Once again, Trevor's chasing his cat, falls off, and Superman swoops in. He remembers Trevor's name. This is the Superman we know. This is a Superman who knows people and is just is what the public perception of him is. And we get him saying, good to meet you, Trev. And the last page of the story is Superman flying off, and he steadfastly says, folks call me Superman. As I mentioned, it, symmetry is something important to me. It's important to see where we started when we come to the end of a journey. And the fact that we see the progress of Smallville, or in some ways the lack of, means a lot to this story. Because no matter where we go, or who we become, there is still a trace of who we were and where we came from. It's no different for Clark Kent. Clark went out in the world, became Superman, but he lost his way, and thanks to his roots, thanks to the town he grew up in, he found his way back. And there's been a lot said about Jonathan and Martha being the core of Superman, being his moral compass, and it is absolutely 110% true, every bit of it. However, Smallville, the town, the environment, that timelessness, the Norman Rockwell, Mayberry, Smallville, is a big part of Jonathan and Martha and what made them who they are. And as we were pointed out in the first issue, at one time when they were recording, they were sitting at the general store, much like Clark and Lana were. For me, this is about Superman's history, too, his real-world history. Um, his perception is that he's a Boy Scout, a goody-goody, outdated, boring. For 75 years, Superman has been largely unchanged in concept, because he still fights for what is right, and he still does it for the sake of being good. There's an innocence to that concept. When For All Seasons begins, Clark hasn't seen heartbreak. He hasn't seen pain. He hasn't seen true evil. He hasn't been tested. And if you trace his career from here to the Superman that we saw last week in the Black Ring, there's a remarkable amount of tragedy within that path. And even it was even mentioned, Pa Kent, Chris Kent, his own death. And yet, the Superman of Action Comics 900 still reached out to Luthor. 
he still rushed after what mattered most to him when his friend Steele was captured by Doomsday. There is, and always should be, a bit of innocence to Superman. There should be a bit of timelessness, a bit of altruism. There should always be a trace of Smallville. That isn't to say that the character shouldn't progress and remain somewhat contemporary, but these small elements should remain in him. For All Seasons is timeless. It could take place in almost any era of Superman's history, and it's not only a great character-driven story, but good food for thought in our darkest times. I often wonder what would have happened, who I would have become in a lot of ways, if I hadn't decided to, on a whim, on a break, look through the magazines on the grocery store rack. I can't help but wonder why, over two years, these books sat overlooked by the distributor. Because normally a distributor will bring the books, and those that didn't sell or that go out of date, they'll take them back. These were there in 2000, in summer of 2000, late summer at that. And I was half in and half out of comics. I was kind of where Clark was in the story. I was looking for a direction. I was a young adult. I wasn't as defined as I would be. And in rapid succession, I rediscovered Superman through this story. And the extended edition of Superman the Movie was released on VHS, which prompted AMC to replay Superman the Movie. And in Superman... I found something that I could believe in. And after this story, after rereading that movie, I began searching the web for Superman. I found the Superman homepage, Superman Super Site. I found other pages. I built my own page. I built the original version of Superman Forever, which was a homestead. It was a really crappy site, but nonetheless, I built that. And as much as the character means to me, it's much of it can be traced right back to this very story. It's a story that's excessively important to me as a fan. It's a story that filled in a lot of the grayer areas of my understanding of a character, of how a character like Superman can work, how he can function, and what it means to have that character exist, um, both in you know, in kind of the fictional context of living in that world and in our world, having that character out there, something that for 75 years has never left the public perception has crossed all forms of media and it all comes back my my renaissance my my re-upping of my fandom comes back to this story and the character just means a lot to me and it's more than i can ever say in a thousand podcast episodes much less 50 Superman for All Seasons is a big influential part of that. It brought me back to the comic shops, back to Metropolis. And when I decided to resume Superman Forever Radio and change it to this kind of cover anything and everything related to Superman, one of the first things to hit the coverage list was for All Seasons. And coming back in, rereading that, um, showing it to my wife, others who recognized, yes, this is something special. Being able to sit down, record this, and talk at length about this story and what it means is what this podcast is all about. About sharing the things that mean something to us. About 
taking this character and saying, no, this is something more than something two-dimensional, something drawn on a page. This is what I can aspire to be. I may not be able to fly, I may not be able to deflect bullets, but darn it, I can try to help people in any way I can. We're all gifted in some way, and if I don't do that, it's just not achieving my destiny or your destiny. But uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to come back over these four issues, and I don't think even if I had four episodes to cover this in, I could ever truly do justice to the story, at least in my eyes. So I hope that in your eyes, I have done justice to this wonderful, wonderful Superman story. Now, as for where this story has been reprinted, it has a hardcover and a paperback trade paperback collection. And for some reason, I had it in my head that there was an absolute edition. And upon doing the research, I found out, no, that's not true. And I immediately went into a rage. And I'm going into a rage now. Because, let me point a few things out to you. We live in a world where we have these great editions that are for these above-the-board stories. Like All-Star Superman, Kingdom Come, DC New Frontier. They're given this... Well, it's absolute, so it is the pinnacle of reprints. It is the one volume of that particular story or series that you can own. And I can't figure out why something on the level of Superman for All Seasons doesn't have an absolute. Let's look at this story. We have critical acclaim. We have a huge, huge amount of sales... We saw this inspire a very huge, huge TV show, which could be tied into the marketing of the Absolute Edition, and yet, Danger Girl gets an Absolute Edition before Superman for All Seasons. Danger Girl! And you know what? I looked up how many Superman stories have Absolute Editions. You know what? Two. Two. All-Star Superman. And For Tomorrow. You're telling me for tomorrow, this incomprehensible piece of garbage that just happens to look pretty gets the Absolute Edition? I mean, somebody explain that plot to me, because I don't think they can. I don't think Brian Azzarello can get on the phone and explain that in some tangible way, shape, or form. And yet, it has an Absolute Edition. This story is one of the greatest Superman stories of all time. And I will fight anybody, metaphorically speaking, people... Who disagrees with that? I think I've got a podcast network on, that has my back on this particular aspect. It deserves to be an absolute edition. So, as I mentioned, I was joking about fighting. So I want to be clear when I say what I'm about to say. I don't want to hurt anyone. I'm not asking for anyone's job. I'm not saying they don't know how to do their job. But I do think that somebody dropped the ball by not giving this piece of art its due diligence. Because it's not like we have a lack of material. And it just hacks me off. So let me take a breath, a breath here and kind of recollect myself. Let me try to reapproach this. We have two trade paperbacks, hardback and paperback edition. And I'm sure you can go to Amazon.com and find them fairly inexpensively. But no Absolute Edition. And 
for some further justification. The reception of this story, the reception for all se- for all seasons, led Warner Brothers to fast track the TV series Smallville, which would go on to run for ten years, from 2001 to 2011. It went on to become one of the longest-running sci-fi series of all time and a worldwide phenomenon, creating new Superman fans. Now, as for the creators, Jeff Loeb would beat out Grant Morrison and Mark Wade and Mark Millar's Superman 2000 pitch to take over Superman the Ongoing continuity book with issue 151, and he would collaborate with Ed McGinnis to revitalize the Superman line of books with stories like Emperor Joker and Y2K. He would also reteam with McGinnis to launch Superman Batman and write the acclaimed Batman storyline Hush with Jim Lee before leaving for Marvel. Tim Sale would continue to work with Jeff Loeb on many Marvel books in the same early day vein as Superman for All Seasons, Hulk Gray, Spider-Man Blue, Daredevil Yellow, Captain America White, and both would work on the hit TV TV series Heroes. Now while both, as I mentioned, would leave DC for Marvel, they did collaborate on three tales set within the Superman for All Seasons context. One of them was from the Superman Batman Secret Files and Origins 2003. And it features Batman. No, it actually features a young Bruce Wayne. It's called When Clark Met Bruce. And it's a story that's very simple. It's only a few pages. Beginning with Clark and Pete playing baseball in the field. And when they go to chase the ball, they see this very fancy car. And what is inside the car is Bruce Wayne as Alfred is changing the tire. After Bruce's parents died, Alfred thought that Bruce needed to get out of Gotham. So they drove to California. Clark thinks, should we ask that kid to play baseball? Pete blows it off saying that kid has never played anything and the kids run off. And the final captions in this book just kill me. Because Batman thinks, and this is the first time we actually get within Batman's head within the For All Seasons context or Superman's head. Because a lot of the narration being done by other characters was because Jeff Loeb didn't want to get into this icon's head. Which obviously would change, but... Bruce thinks, by the time we reached the West Coast, I had convinced Alfred we should fly back home. And Superman thinks, I still wonder if we should have asked him to play baseball, if it would have made a difference. And while Clark thinks, and and Bruce thinks, I wish they had asked me to play, but by then, my life had changed. I had no time for games. It's actually a really sad, it's a sad story about the end of innocence in a forced arena. Where Clark naturally got to grow out of his resistance, or his innocence, Bruce was forced out of it. Bruce didn't have a chance. He was shot before he got out of the boat. And I like the juxtaposition of these two characters. You can tell it's getting late. The next story appeared in a book called Solo, which would feature a writer or artist and their work. Um, This one was Tim Sale's book, and it's called Prom Night. And it actually takes place, well, on Prom Night. Clark goes to pick up Lana, and on his way to pick her up, he meets good old Amelia Gulch, who's the crankiest woman in town, yet another great character in Smallville. And she is caught in the mud, so Clark, being Clark, gets out in his tux and helps her, and she speeds off, spraying him with mud. But Clark is not going to fail Lana, so he flies up in the air and literally spins, washing his, his tux off, and goes to pick her up. And the final scene really gets me because this unlike the others is narrated by Ma Kent so we finally get her perspective 
And she writes, I get a little misty when I look at that photo. It isn't, it wasn't too long after that that Clark revealed his powers to Lana. The two of them were never the same. But on that night, as the moon came out, he was her Superman. And this picture is phenomenal. Clark's a little awkward. And Lana just looks as happy as can be putting her corsage on. I, it's, it's a commentary on for all seasons in a lot of ways. It's that sort of last moment. Uh, kind of like the last hurrah before your graduation or before you, you know, will go to prom. I guess. <laughs> it's exactly what prom should be. And then we have Sam's story. Um, this is, uh, I've talked about this before. And this is a really well done story. In fact, I, I really like that they stuck uh, Mary Jane and Gwen Stacy in the first panel here. Because, cute. And it's, okay, it's hard for me to talk about this story. I've done it before. I've tried to remain objective, but that's not going to happen here. So I'm just going to be completely honest with you. With this story, it's about Clark meeting a friend named Sam, who was a kid that sa that could make Clark laugh, to make Clark forget he was different. One day, Sam comes to school on crutches, saying he got hurt playing soccer, but Clark knows better. He knows Sam doesn't play soccer and uses his x-ray vision and sees that Clark has cancer in or that Sam has cancer in his bones. And they have this talk and Clark is struggling to understand and asking what can I do to help? And Sam says, "What you always do, be my pal, laugh at my stupid jokes." Clark, I've got the best friends, the best doctors, the best outlook. Don't worry. But the cancer had spread to his lungs. And sure enough, Sam dies. And the thing is that kills me is the last few pages because, you know, the, the school counselors come, they announce it, and Clark runs. He didn't want to talk to anybody, he just ran away and ran away into the night. Jonathan comes out on the porch, and Clark is crumpled on the porch swing. And Clark just falls into his dad's arms saying it's, it's so unfair, and it is. And we see the last shot of Superman standing at Sam's grave, and... The thing that kills me about this story is uh, it's a dedication to Jeff Loeb's son, Sam, who did die of cancer. Um, it was in an issue that was dedicated to Sam that was largely written by Sam. This was one final homage to his son. And I've heard, I've heard stories about Jeff Loeb. Um, arriving at a Superman interview and... A little late and frantic because he lost his wallet in the back of the car. And it's not that the money was in there, but he had a lock of his son's hair. And when the cab driver brought it back, he gave the cab driver $100 just for bringing it back. And this is a, this is a heartfelt story from a man to his son, which is an echo of everything we saw and everything I loved. <clears throat> excuse me, about issue one. And once again, you know, I can't talk about this story objectively, so I'm just going to leave that there. Um, I'm sorry. That wraps up this 50th episode of Superman Forever Radio. Thank you to the listeners. Thank you to my friends, my fellow podcasters, the network, and my lovely wife. I appreciate you all. I appreciate your support. And here's to episode 100. Keep on fighting the never-ending battle. This has been Superman Forever Radio, a NatWorld production. 
You can find the show on iTunes with backlogs of episodes, where you can also leave a review. The show finds its home at supermanforever.com and is a very proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. You can friend the show on Facebook at, at facebook.com slash supermanforeverradio and email the show at mail at supermanforever.com. David can be found on Twitter at twitter.com slash superdaveweeder. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, are all properties of Warner Brothers Entertainment and DC Entertainment. All music and sound clips used on the show are copyright their respective owners and no infringement is intended. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. 